Welcome to the Ruby Book Club podcast, where we read an hour of a Ruby book each week and dissect it with you. I'm Saran, developer and founder of Code Newbie. And I'm Nadia, developer and director at Ignition Works. So continuing on with Ruby under a microscope by Pat Shaughnessy. This week, we're going to get stuck into chapter four, and this is all about control structures and method dispatch. Today, we're going to discuss how Ruby executes an if statement, how we jump from one scope to another, something called catch tables, and also how Ruby implements loops internally. So quite a lot. Yeah, that's a lot to go through. Remember to follow us on Twitter at Ruby Book Club. And if you're reading along and you're on Twitter, tweet at us and let us know what you think of the book so far. We'd love to hear from you. So how did you find this week's reading? So as we heard in the intro, it's quite a lot. Um, I had to take it pretty slowly. That's why it's actually only six pages this week. Normally we tend to get around 10 or so. Um, so it was quite dense. But I actually found that Pat's instructions um, were really helpful. So for example, I'll give you an example. He might say, he might make a statement about this bit of code is similar to this bit of code in text. And I'd be like, oh, I really wish there was an example. And then straight after he'd be like, well, by this, I mean that. And I'm like, perfect. And there was another <laughs> one with diagrams where yeah. he explained something in words. And then he showed, we'll get to it, three diagrams, which were basically the same with subtle changes. And I felt mm -hmm. that in the past, we hadn't had such detail with the diagrams. And so I found myself a lot of the time thinking, this is quite tricky, but um, Pat's done a better job of trying to break it down. So I definitely got a good high level understanding of each of the bits and pieces. What about you? Yeah. Yeah, this was one of the sections where, remember early on when we first started reading this book, we said, oh, we're so excited for all the diagrams and the pictures and all that. Uh, and there were definitely a good number of visuals today or, you know, in this reading. And that was really, really awesome. We also had different styles, right? Because we had like a flow chart mm -hmm. and we had code. Mm -hmm. We had like the, the normal diagrams we're used to seeing. So, yeah, we got different. And we also had text. So we got all these different medium mm -hmm. working together to confirm what he was trying to explain. Yes. I also want to say that I'm very proud of myself because I've been really connecting with my inner Nadia. And there Yay! were parts where I was like, I don't I don't a hundred percent understand this, but like I get the high point. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna appreciate the parts that I get and gonna move on. Uh so that was really helpful too, just like being in that mindset of, you know, trust that later on we'll get a little bit more in depth and the holes will be filled because that's what's been happening really is you know we find holes and then a couple episodes later we're like oh that's what that means so I think I got a lot of value from it just by like setting my expectations accordingly. can I also say that this is not natural for me so naturally I do want to get more detail like I still find found find that hard to do all the time but I'm definitely I definitely think I do that more easily than you do but it's still not natural for yes. me so I'm still fighting it a little bit Okay. Just, I just Good, want you to know that. Me happy. I want you to know that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that. Okay. So, shall we begin? Let's go. So we are starting with how Ruby executes an if statement. And I was personally just really excited about this because I was like, oh, I know and understand those and use those all the time. Yes. So this will be great to, you know, under to to look under the hood on this. This is pretty cool. So here, really the point is that we're using the if statement to examine how Yarv controls execution flow. And so here we have um, essentially four steps that Ruby uses to implement the if-else statement. And it starts with step one, which is evaluate the condition. Step two, which is jump to false code if condition is false. Step three, true code, jump past the false code. And then step four, which is false code. So if we go to figure 4.1, we have uh, a few, I guess we have like a, a graphic. Is this a table? I don't know how to describe this. A table thing um, that shows how Ruby compiles an if-else statement. So on the left, we have the actual if-else statement we're talking about. And it reads i equals zero. If i is less than 10, 
puts the string small, else puts the string large, and puts done, which is pretty straightforward. And then on the right, we have YARV instructions that break down exactly what's happening and how Ruby is actually compiling that if-else statement. It's a little bit long, but it breaks down into those four steps that we talked about. So step one, Ruby evaluates the condition of the if statement, i is less than 10. We see that happening a few lines into the YARV statement with something called opt underscore LT, which stands for optimized less than instruction. And to the right of opt underscore LT, we have, there's that long call info, bang, mid, colon, and the less than, comma, argc, colon, one. And in my version, there isn't a dot, 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 but I'm going to assume that that continues and keeps going for a while. So we see uh, that opt LT, which is pretty important. And... Nadia, have we seen the opt LT before? No, we've not seen opt LT, but we've seen other things that have opt something else. So the concept okay, right, of an exactly. optimized yeah, of instruction. Right, yeah. Yeah, I couldn't remember specifically the LT part, but yes, we have had opt things before. So that is the line that really digs into um, evaluating that condition. And then we go to step two, which is branch unless. And this happens right under opt LT, and it reads branch unless... And then next to it has the number 25. And so what this does is it jumps down to the else code if the condition is false. And what's interesting here is that Ruby uses branch unless instead of using branch if for if else conditions. Because the positive case is compiled to appear right after the condition code. So I didn't really understand what that meant. Oh. Um, I, <laughs> I circled it and put a question mark. And I was like, I don't really know what this is saying. Guess what I have. Is it an audio sidebar? It it kind of diverges into something else, but it started with me thinking I understood it and wanted to double check that I understood it and do my own research. So I read that sentence and I was like, I think I understand what this is saying. I think that what Pat is saying is we obviously need branching code somewhere because we've got to do one bit of code if something's true and another bit of code if something's false. So I think what Pat is saying is, Given how the YARV instructions work, which is it goes from top to bottom, so we're always going to have the the instructions that refer to the um, true code first, and then it's going to always have the instructions that relate to the negative case afterwards, because that's how we write if-else statements, right? We say, if true, then this, else, blah, blah, blah. That's how we write them. And the compiler does it from top to bottom. So what I think he's saying is, when the YARV, the YARV virtual machine has two methods, branch if and branch unless, um, which they could use. And they had to use branch unless um, because that's the only way that you could um, get the code to work in the in the right order. So that was a bit, of, bit confusing. Let me try and say that again. Okay, so the Ruby core team had two options, right? They have, they have to, 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 to choose which bit of code that they're going to run, right? You understand that bit. There's two yeah. bits of code. There's mm-hmm. one bit of code, run this bit, and there's there's another bit of code which says, or run this bit. And you only want one of those sets of codes code to happen. Um, yes. And it must be, because the instructions run from top to bottom, you have to have, at the end of one of the sections of code, there has to be, you're, you're going to have to jump across the other section. Does that make sense? Okay. So, so, so no. okay. So you've got um, you're going to have one chunk of code at the top, one chunk of mm-hmm. code underneath it, and then the rest of the code, right? Yeah. So if you're running chunk A, 
but not chunk B, that means the bottom of chunk A has to have skip past jump part B in it. Right. You get that. Right. Okay. Cool. Whereas part mm-hmm. B does not have to have a skip anything, it could just continue. And so mm-hmm. what they're saying is because the positive part A is always going to be positive when we're talking about if else, it's always going to be the code you want to run if the thing is true. Mm-hmm. So that so chunk A is always going to be the true case. Right. Which means um, part A always has have to have a bit at the bottom, which says jump past the false case. Mm-hmm. So then when you come to YAV, YAV has two things. It says branch unless something happens to be the case or, or branch if something is the case, right? Mm-hmm. So if they used branch if, the problem is branch if says jump if the condition is true. But you never mm-hmm. want to jump if the condition is true because jumping jumps past the true bit, which we know is always first. So they had to mm. use branch unless, which means branch unless the condition is true. So branch by default. Because if you don't branch, branch by default unless the condition is true. Which is basically a way of saying first check for false condition because we need to jump straight away if it's false. That that's still not being clear, is it? Mm, it's like half, mm. but n- not really. I'm trying to think how to properly explain it. Which which bit is? Maybe if you express to me which which bit you don't get, then I can maybe say it in a better way. Um. So I I don't get, I don't get why the I I just don't get it. Like I don't get why the jumping means anything. Okay. I I, I don't. Mm-hmm. Go on. Yeah, it's it's like the code if i is less than ten puts small like that runs from top to bottom. Mm-hmm. So why would the yarv instruction need to do false first? Like okay. I don't. So it runs from top to bottom. So so basically you're either doing puts small or puts large, right? So you mm-hmm. need both sets of instructions written out in case. Mm-hmm. because you don't know if one case I is going to be less than 10 or in another case I is going to be greater than 10. So you need all of those instructions, but you mm-hmm. need to make sure that sometimes the large, like puts large isn't called or puts small isn't called. What you do know based on how the YAV compiler works is that the instructions for how to do puts small is always going to be above the instructions for how to, for the, for how to do puts large. That's what we do know. If you're reading from top mm-hmm. to bottom, put small is always going to be put yeah. large. Now, um, so you need to either jump past all the instructions for put small straight to put large, or you need to do put small and then jump past put large. Yep. Okay. Right? So mm-hmm. far, so good. Mm-hmm. So then the other part of the solution is for jumping, you have three, you have three options in um, YAV to, to skip code. You've either got jump, which just jumps to a certain thing that you say, and then you've got two methods that branch on based on a conditional within YAV. One is branch mm-hmm. if, and one is branch unless. So we know we can't mm-hmm. use jump because we need to only jump, we don't want to jump all the time, we only want to jump in some cases, right? right? So then we've got mm-hmm. two options, branch if and branch unless. Now branch if says jump if the condition I give you is true. Mm-hmm. branch unless says branch unless the condition is true okay right so if we take let's assume we had branch if the condition is true if they used 
the branch if method. That would mm-hmm. mean mm-hmm. that if the condition was true, Yav would jump past the first chunk of code to the second chunk of code. But, well, sorry, Yav would jump past the f- first um, chunk of instructions to the second chunk of instructions. But we know that the second chunk of instructions is the false stuff. So we, we don't want that to happen. That's backwards. Oh. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. If we had branch if, it would say, if the condition is too true, branch, so jump. But we don't want jumping if the condition is true because we know that with the YAV instructions from top to bottom and the way if-else statements are written, the stuff at the top is the true stuff. So we need the stuff at the top to run if the thing is true. Oh. So, so then the only other method that the Ruby... Oh, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, so the only other Ruby method that the Ruby team has at its disposal is branch unless. And this one works because this says branch unless the condition is true, which is if the condition is true, don't branch. So that's the one we want because the true stuff's at Got the top. It. Okay, that makes Yay, sense. Yay, I'm so, yeah, I think I'm that, so glad <laughs> I persevered. <laughs> yeah, it's like, now that I understand it, like now it seems like super obvious. Um, yeah. The thing that was like that I was just was totally ignoring was the fact that, which is kind of funny because it's the first thing you said, um, which is that like we need to jump, like it, the jumping needs to happen. So I like I forgot that the jumping needs to happen. Great, but so at this point I was like, hmm, I think I'm right in thinking that there's only a limited set of methods, which is branch unless unless branch if or jump. So I wanted to Google mm-hmm. this to check. So I ended up fi- finding the YAV website for the YAV project, which is www.at.net slash YAV. Um, we can put mm-hmm. a link in the show notes. Cool. And so this project is run by Koichi Sasada, who's a Ruby core committer, and he used to work with Matt at Heroku. And on the YAV site, it's one of those very basic, like plain text websites. It says the mission, um, the mission of the site is to develop the fastest virtual machine for Ruby in the world. So I thought that was fun. And then I also found a page with all the YAV instruction methods like that are possible. And there's only 120 of them. So there are things like get local, set local, branch if, branch unless. But lots of them are actually different variations of the same thing. So if you look at um, instructions 79 to to 120, they are all like different variations of optimizations. So they're ones that say like optimize from the, the, the first index or the second index. So really the method, like I think Pat says this in the book earlier on, the list of possible methods for YAV is really small. And also if you yeah. go and have a look yourself, there are some Easter eggs in there. So I spotted some things that were called joke and things like that. And like I did some Googling and I found like when this was released, like people spotted it and it was a big Easter egg thing and a joke thing. So, so go and have a Google everyone. It's quite interesting. But it was really cool, cool to actually look at the whole like scheme of instructions for YAV and see that it is indeed quite small. It's very low level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very cool. So that's my little sidebar. Awesome. Yeah, I'm I'm surprised that there aren't that many instructions. That's pretty cool. Huh, 120, cool. Okay, so now we're moving on to step three, which basically says, I feel like what, what Nadia explained to me, which is that if the condition is true, Ruby, I almost said Robbie, Jesus, that's my husband. <laughs> Ruby does not <laughs> branch and it continues to execute the passive code. And then number four, whether or not it branches, Ruby continues to execute the subsequent code. Yeah. And so then um, Pat goes on to say that if we have an unless statement, um, this is very similar to if, it just 
the positive and negative code snippets are in reverse order, as we'd expect. And for looping control structures, so things like while ends and until ends, then Yav would use the branch if instruction instead. Um, and the concept is the same, so we're going to calculate the loop condition branch if um, to jump as necessary and then use uh, jump statements to implement whatever's in the loop. Mm-hmm. And then there's a really handy, I thought this was super helpful, um, flowchart in figure 4.2. And it shows the pattern that we've just discussed about compiling if-else statements. So it starts with the first set of YAV instructions. Um, and then it has a branch into a, um, a little, sorry, an arrow into the instruction that says branch unless. And it has a diagram that says, okay, look, we skipped the first branch of code or the first um, set of instructions if the condition is false otherwise we go straight down um, and then at the last so if you in the case where the condition is true you see an arrow going from the top block of java instructions skipping the false block and going to the stuff at the end so it basically is another and this is one of the examples in this reading where it was like a different way of showing what what Pat had already shown us in words and another diagram. Um, so yeah, this flowchart was super helpful. Yeah, I really love this flowchart a lot um, because it, yeah, that's always one of the the things that throws me off whenever I look at Yarv instructions is what, like, what do these sections, these lines of code connect to? And, you know, what are they referred to? So having just, you know, the flow itself, like the arrows are really helpful, but just even having it segmented and blocked off and saying, like, these lines are related to this and this this section is related. That was just really helpful. I think there is, and I could be wrong. So Pat, if you're listening, correct me or anyone else. I think there's one arrow, at least in my Kindle version, that's on this flowchart that shouldn't be there. And basically, between the, th- the second rectangular block and the third one, so i.e. the ones after the first triangle, the yeah. one that starts with 0017 put self, and then the, mm-hmm. the one under that which starts with 0025 trace, there's an arrow between those two go just straight down. And mm-hmm. I think that that path never happens. Yeah. I th- yeah, yeah. You've either done the whole jump point to is 33. Right, or right. you jump to 25. Yep. So I think that arrow is misleading. Yeah, that is a good point. Yeah, I didn't even catch that. Good catch. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so for this next section, we're moving on to jumping from one scope to another. And in this context, we're going to talk a little bit about break and how it's used and how Yarv instructions deal with it. So we have listing 4-1, where we have a while loop. So we start with i equals 0, while i is less than 10, puts i, i plus equals 1, and then we have the break, and then we have end. And then we have another example of how we might use a break, which is in listing 4-2. And here we have 10 dot times do n puts n break end. And then we have puts continue from here. So here Pat tells us that the while loop is pretty simple. It has a a very basic jump instruction. And we talked about the jump instruction when we covered the um, if else conditional. But for the 10 dot times when we have a break that's inside of a block, that is a little bit different. So here we go into what those YARV instructions look like. And so with this 10 dot times do block, uh, we need to handle that a little bit differently because we have um, we have two scopes. We have the scope that's inside of the block and then the scope that's outside of it. So we're going to talk about how YARV instructions deals with those two scopes. So we have figure 4-3. And again, we have the code on the left, which is 10 dot times do n puts n break end. And then we have puts continue from here. And on the right, we have YARV instructions and 
these are pretty they're not too long so i'm just gonna read them real quick we start with put self get local two comma zero and then we have our opt send simple which we've seen before and that has the call info bang mid puts comma argc colon one i'm sure some, some other stuff as well then we have pop i don't know if we've seen pop before we've we seen mm-hmm. pop before anything so. okay cool and then we have put nil and then we have throw with a, a two next to it and then we have leave so that's one section and then there's another section of your instructions that starts with put object 10 send call info bang mid colon times comma rxc colon zero dot 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 then we have another pop a put self put string and then we have the string continue from here next line we have opt send simple with the call info bang mid puts rxc colon one dot 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 and then we end with leave so here we see that there are two sets of YARV instructions and they're each dealing with a different scope, right? Okay, cool. Yeah. So here we see that we have the two different sets of YARV instructions, each one dealing with a different scope. And this is where we introduce the concept of cat tables. So so as Saron said, we've got two different sets of YARV instructions. The, the top one um, was for the scope within the block and the second one is the parent scope. And so... In um, the first one, we have a throw to. And so this throws an ex- exception at um, the YARV instruction level using something called a catch table. And another way of defining a catch table is a table of pointers um, that can be attached to any YARV code snippet. And in figure 4.4, um, Pat shows us what a, a catch table might look like. And so what we see is we see a normal set of YARV instructions that we've been used to seeing throughout the book. But on the right, um, dotted off with a gray dotted line, there's a section which has catch, is labeled catch table. And halfway down, we have capital letters break, and it, it has an arrow pointing out to the left, back into the YARV instructions to the line that says pop. And so what is happening is that, um, so this catch table is a catch table that has a single pointer to the pop statement. And so what this says is when you use a break statement in a block, Ruby compiles the throw instruction um, into the blocks code and adds a break entry into the parent scope to where you want the code to continue from. So when the YARV gets to the throw instruction, it immediately starts to check to see whether there's a catch table containing the break pointer in, 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 the, next, in, the, in the current scope and then in the next scope. So to explain that a bit better, we have um, some further diagrams. So, the YARV, so this is in figure 4.5. So the YARV instruction gets to the point where it says throw to. So it's like, ah, I've got a throw statement. Let me see if in the catch table in my current scope, there is um, a break pointer. So it checks. Um, and what we see in this in figure 4.5 is on the left, we have um, something that represents the YARV instructions with the catch table on the right. And then on the right of figure 4.5, we have a, a three deep stack of RB control frame T's. So we know that they relate to each scope. Um, between the top RB control frame T to the YARV instructions, we have a dotted arrow saying break pointer question mark. So is there a break pointer in this catch table? And then from the right hand side going into the RB control frame T, we have a, a current frame pointer or a control frame pointer which says we're currently in this scope. So what this is trying to show is when we first reach the throw to, we check within the current YARV instruction scope, within the current control frame, hey, do we have a break pointer in here? Question mark. If we don't find anything, then 
Ruby starts to iterate down through the next control frame. So we've got figure 4.6, which says, nope, we didn't find anything in the, the that current scope. So let's go to the next um, scope down or out rather. Um, and so again, we see break pointer question mark into the second scope, um, the second set of YARV instructions for the CFP. And, and then we have figure 4.7, which says, okay, if we don't find anything in that control frame, um, we go to the next one. And so figure 4.7 shows um, the same thing, but this time we're dealing with the, the RB control frame T that's on the bottom. And we're asking again, do you have a break pointer? And so what Ruby keep, does here is it keeps up iterating until it finds a catch table with a break pointer or until it reaches the end of the call stack. And I just wanna say that when he said that it iterated down when I was reading this, I imagined that this is what it looked like, but this was another case where it was really useful to have the same diagram pretty much drawn out three times, just with that change of, hey, I'm, I'm yeah. looking here, is anything there? And it's so, it's so simple, but it's so useful. And I don't think we've had something like this before where we show like a process happen through diagrams. And mm -hmm. this was great. And now I'm yeah. starting to see why people keep going on about this book's great, the diagrams are amazing because of stuff like this. Yeah, it was one of those things where I thought to myself, I. I didn't need this diagram, but it was really great to have it. Yeah. It yeah. was really, really nice to have it. Yeah. So one question I had about this is if we have a throw, then we should have a break. Yes. Like, right? That's what okay. I thought too. Okay. So when uh, when Pat says, you know, it, it just keeps going down until it either finds a break pointer or until the code ends. Um, if the code ends, and that means that's like incorrectly written, right? Yeah, like I, okay. I, I was thinking, I thought the same thing. I was like, the reason I, I got the sense of if you see, if you write break in your Ruby code, it creates the throw and the break pointer in the catch table at the same time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like if it doesn't, right, exactly, I don't understand yeah. why it wouldn't do that. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. So like if it doesn't, then something went terribly wrong. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Okay. And then we have figure 4.8, which was great because it showed the same thing, but using um in a different way um so on the we've got three gray boxes on the top left we've got the ruby code so we've got 10 dot times do n puts n break end and then puts continue from here then on the right we've got the yav instructions that relate to the inside of the block so put self get local all the way down to the throw two then from the throw to there's an arrow from the two that goes down into the catch table of the yav instructions of the parent scope so this is the second set of yav instructions and you see that we go to catch table we see the break the break points into the pop and then we know that the, the yav instructions continues from there so it goes to the put self put string continue from here opsend symbol puts a uh, call info mid with puts so we know that's how when you get to the break in the block how it jumps from that break to the puts continue from here and uh, in the book pat says once ruby finds the catch table pointer it resets both the ruby call stack so this is the cfp pointer and the internal yav stack to reflect the new program execution point and so yeah yav continues to execute our code from this point and so also the internal program counter and stack pointers are also reset as needed. It is so helpful to review this with you because the first time I read this, I was like, mm, I kind of get it, but like not really. But just hearing you essentially, you know, paraphrase the reading <laughs> in like, you know, in Nadia words. I'm like, oh, uh, yeah, that makes like it just solidifies everything. So I, I really appreciate it. And I guess the counter to that is I think this stuff in my head. And so when I say it and you get it. 
and you're like, oh yeah, that that's like the extra confirmation for me as well. Oh, good. Like similarly, like <laughs> earlier when we did the whole brand different branch and less, that was another thing. You know, it meant a lot that I we got to a point where we both understood. Otherwise, it was like, ah, am I going crazy? Or I understand yeah. this in my head. I should be able to articulate this. So yeah, yeah it works both ways. So I'm glad. Good, 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 good. So one question that I had is going back to figure 4-3, when we talk about um, these two different sets of ER instructions, are they literally two different sets or is it just, is it like one set of instructions that he kind of broke in half so that we could visually see it? They are two different sets because early, like maybe last chapter, chapter three, we found out that for each scope in Ruby, um, there's a different RB control frame T that's created. Ah, and right, each right, RB right, control yeah. frame T has its own set of YARV instructions. So they are literally right. a separate set. And so this okay. is why, so initially, when he's, he introduced example 4.1 and 4.2, I was confused because I was like, why, why, I don't understand why, why there's different, why they're different. Why is the break in 4.1 more simple than the break in 4.2? Surely you just break and then you go to the next thing. But I realized that the, what made 4.2 different to 4.1 was the fact that you were dealing with two set of YARV instructions rather than one set. And so mm. then I was like, ah, oh, I get it. How does, how does YARV, how does YARV jump from one set to another mm-hmm. set? Then I understood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Cool. So now we talk about other uses for catch tables. So one is the return keyword, which is another ordinary Ruby control structure that also uses catch tables. Um, So we have the break and return, and these are actually implemented the same way, the same using the same type of YARV instructions, but there's one difference, which is that when we do return, Ruby passes a one to the throw instruction, but when we use a break, it passes a two which uh, we will see as like throw two. Um, and so in that sense, return and break keywords are two sides of the same coin. Okay. What does that do part you, mean? Do I you know the difference part. between return and break? Because I read that and I was like, oh, okay. If someone asked me now, I don't actually know the difference. And I felt a bit silly about this. Because I, I was like, so. I feel I should know the difference. And it's very basic, but I was, I was just like, why don't I know this? So do you know? Or do you want another mini Nadia yes, I always want a mini Nadia sidebar. This is mini because it's literally two sentences, which I got from Stack Overflow. <laughs> and I tried something out in IRB2 to test it. But when you do return, it, exit, it exits from the entire function or method. And when you do break, it exits from the innermost loop. So let's assume you have a method like def cake. I don't know why I always do cake. Def cake. Because cake is amazing. And it has like um, an zero to five dot each do mm-hmm. and then immediately into that it has another zero to five dot each do mm-hmm. and then there's code in the middle and then you have a break when you break it will break out of the first zero dot five and then but go to the the one just above it mm. so it'll keep doing stuff but if you had a return it would just stop doing everything mm. it, just, it doesn't so so break just goes to the next level up but return yeah, just yeah. exit everything very cool. Huh, and I that's why you have, yeah. and this is another thing. So I was like, what does the throw one and the throw two mean? Well, it tells you where to go. So throw, um, for return, throw one is like saying, go out to the first scope. Whereas oh, throw two okay. is like the, the current scope, I think. That, sorry, the next, wait, now I'm a bit confused. But, but essentially it's saying where, do you look where you are now or do you go to the one out? Mm, mm-hmm. Sorry, do you go to the outermost one or do you go to the to the to the to to the next one up? 
Okay, so one would be so when he says throw one or throw two, I assume it's not always throw one or throw two. It's like in this context, it would be throw one versus throw two. Yes. Right. Okay. Cool. Because there's two scopes. There has to right. be more numbers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Cool. So besides break and return, Ruby also uses the catch table for things like rescue, ensure, retry, redo, and next. So that is cool to know. And I like the little summary that says, the catch table is simply a list of event types that can be caught and handled by that sequence of YARV instructions. Yeah. So we were hoping to get through experiment 4.1 in this episode, but I think this is a, a good stopping point. We've covered a lot of stuff just in the last you know, 30, 40 minutes. So this week, the reading for me was, this was a good reading. I enjoy this a lot. Um, I think I'm, especially after like talking through it with you, um, I'm going to probably give it, I think I'm going to give it an 8. Mm. This is an 8 for me. What about you? I was going to give it a 7. Um Ooh. But now, but I feel like it's an eight because I've really enjoyed it even more talking with you. But I'm just going to go with seven just because I think, you know how I said at the beginning that it's not easy for me to just say, um, to do the high level. I definitely think I'm better at it. But I had a little bit of a struggle with that this time. And it actually took me a long time to get through those um, six pages, um, which is fine. It was dense. I think it was well explained. But yeah, I don't want to be influenced by your score, which is an eight, which is more generous, <laughs> so I'm going to stick with my yeah. seven. But it was it, it was a good reading. I did enjoy it. Yeah. I learned so much. I was even describing it to other Ruby developers who I work with and feeling like, yeah, I feel confident sort of explaining the high level. And that's really powerful. Um, mm. And I know in previous weeks, I really felt less confident, you know, around episode seven and eight. And now I'm starting to feel more confident. And I think it's like what you said. We're talking about things that we use and we know so it's like, it's really cool to mm-hmm. be like, hey, when I write this, if else, this is what's happening behind the scenes. Yes. Yep. Totally agree. So we want to know, what did you think of the reading this week? Tweet us your score at Ruby Book Club and tell us about how you plan to use the takeaways from this episode in your next project. See you next week. Cheerio. Cheerio.